Well, Happy New Year. How's everybody doing? Wonderful to see all of you here today, all of us together, one service. It's, it's really a great thing. Uh, I'm very excited about the topic that we are going to be talking about uh, this morning slash afternoon. I really have enough to go into the evening, um, but I was told that you'd all leave, so I cut it down to my allotted 40-minute time-ish. So, anyway, uh, I do want to tell you this. Uh, I grew up in Boston. Many of you know that if you've been here for a while. And, uh, and I grew up in a Cuban home, which means one of several things, one of which is that my family's totally insane. Um, another one is, is that pork is one of the four food groups in our house, and everything in my house was covered in plastic. But that's besides the point. But uh, in fact, but even the lampshade at our house was covered in plastic, which I never really understood. Um, and, uh, but, but here's the thing, is that uh, my, my mom and my stepdad were very particular about the furniture. And uh, you were allowed, I was allowed to sit on the furniture, but not much else. You couldn't really move around. You couldn't, like, roll around, you know, kneel on. You couldn't do anything. You could sit on the furniture, and that was it. But, you know, now the thing that you have to understand is that growing up in, in Boston um, in the 80s, um, we didn't have air conditioning. Like, my parents, uh, my mom, my stepdad, their bedroom had air conditioning. The rest of the house did not. I had, like, a little fan uh, when it was, like, 1,000 degrees out in Boston for the, the, the two-week summer that we had. Um, I had this little fan, but what would happen is, is that so I'd be wearing shorts and you'd sit on the plastic covered furniture. And, um, and so if you can imagine when it's like 90 degrees out, when you decide to leave, like get up, it'd be, it's like peeling a fruit roll up, you know, when you're trying to get up. So it's kind of weird. But, uh, I remember the first day, uh, I was 11 and I remember the first time that my mom actually let me stay home alone. My stepdad, um, was at work. And she decided, my mom decided to take my sister and go shopping. And she said, you can stay home uh, if you want to. And it was, a, I was really excited because I was ne- had never been allowed uh, to stay home. Uh, apparently, I wasn't really all that responsible or something. But, um, and so she said she was going to go to the supermarket, buy groceries. I could stay home. And I said, yes. She said, just don't do anything crazy. I said, of course not. I'm just going to sit here and just read the newspaper, whatever 11-year-olds do. And, uh, and so what I did was the moment that she left, I actually just was looking out the window. I saw her car drive off. I ran upstairs to my room. I grabbed my Van Halen 1984 record. Now, some of you are like, a record? What's that? It's like this big vinyl thing. Anyway, forget it. Uh, but, um, so I grabbed my Van Halen 1984 record. I put the, the record on and on the needle. And some of you are like, this sounds so weird. Uh, did you have to crank up the side or something? Well, some of you did. Uh, but anyway, so I put the, the record on. I put on the song Panama, if you remember that song. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, it's, uh, so I, I put the song on. I jump on the couch. And remember, I was barely allowed to sit on the couch, but I jumped on the couch. I'm playing like air guitar like nobody's ever played. I'm jumping up and down on this couch that I'm normally not allowed. Uh, and so I'm jumping from side to side on the couch onto the the ottoman on the couch, back onto the, 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 the couch. I mean, it's all, I was having this great time. And then I hear, boom, the door slam. She forgot something. And uh, it was at that moment that things got ugly. And uh, my mom introduced me to another Van Halen song off that album, a song called House of Pain. And uh, but now this is my problem. My problem was I didn't know she was coming back so soon. Because had I known that she was returning, I certainly would not have been messing around. The same thing, my friends, is true for us. One of the foundational truths of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Over and over, he lets us know of this truth. In fact, in the Bible, over 300 times, the Bible talks about the return of Jesus to the earth. One of them is found here in John chapter 14. It's in the notes that we gave you. And it says this. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. You see, the reality of Jesus' second coming was, was so vivid. It was so real. To the early disciples of Jesus after his resurrection, that when Jesus ascended into heaven, they just waited. I mean, it's amazing to me if you read the account in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven and they just stand there watching. And then 
the Bible says that two angels show up and they say, men of Galilee, what are you doing? We just said he's coming back. This thing is just grabbing like a backpack or something. And, and, and look at what it says. I, I put it in, in your notes. It says, after this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching until they could see no longer. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. But some day he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. You see, this moment, Jesus' ascension into heaven... And then the promise that he would return would be the thing that marked their lives. That Jesus could come back at any moment. That's why these disciples, they did not fear prison. They did not fear torture. They did not fear death. These men saw Jesus rise from the dead. And if they saw Jesus rise from the dead, then listen, and they saw him ascend into heaven, they had the promise of his return. And it didn't matter what they did to him because they knew that he had gone up and that he promised to come back. And if he promised to come back, then certainly he would. You see, I I honestly believe that one of the healthiest realities that you can live with in your heart and in your mind is the truth that Jesus could come back on this very day. But here's the thing that's important for us to note and what I want to drill down on in our time together. That couldn't really be said of every generation. Because not every generation could it have been that Jesus could come back. Why? Because certain Bible prophecies had to be fulfilled. Certain things had to be in place for Jesus to come back. If you and I were having this church service and it was the 15th century, we really couldn't say that Jesus could come back today. Why? Because Israel was not yet a nation. And Israel is the key to Bible prophecy. And so, honestly, the Bible talks about Israel being a nation. It talks about Israel dwelling in the land, Israel prospering in the land, and all these things happening at the time of Jesus' return. And so the issue is, that couldn't have happened before May 14th of 1948, when Israel was given its independence. After the horrors of World War II and Nazi Germany, the world community understood that this would have never happened to the Jewish people had Israel had their own homeland. But even after 1948, Israel did not control Jerusalem. And in fact, in the book of Zechariah, the Bible says this. uh, God would say that, I behold, I make Jerusalem a cup of trembling, which is what it has been even to this very day. Last week, comments that our president made about Jerusalem. I'll get to that in just a moment. That make Jerusalem a cup of trembling for the entire world. But Jerusalem was not under the control of Israel in 1948. Instead, it was under the control of Israel's neighbors uh, to the east, the country of Jordan or Transjordan. And that was, they were controlling Jerusalem until June of 1967. In June, uh, June 5th, 1967, Israel, um, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria decided to mount a preemptive attack, a preemptive strike against Israel with their goal of Israel's absolute destruction. Yet what they didn't expect was for Israel to completely clean their clock, which is exactly what happened in what now is famously called the Six-Day War. And not only did Israel beat back their enemies, they actually took land that once had belonged to their enemies and they took land back. In fact, let me show you this map real quick. Um, one of the things that you'll see, if you can see, uh, some of you in the back might be difficult, but you'll see this kind of light green area. That was Israel before the Six-Day War. After the Six-Day War, what you have is this area right here that's called the West Bank was taken. And then, of course, the city of Jerusalem was taken by Israel during the Six-Day War. All of this area, which is called the Sinai Peninsula, was taken from Egypt. This area of, called the West Bank was taken from Jordan. And then this area right here, right by the Sea of Galilee, which is called the Golan Heights, was taken from Syria. Now that is why, after the Six-Day War, there was all kinds of tension between these three countries. Now, in 1979, um, President Carter, uh, whom I met, by the way, at Disney World. We didn't talk about this, but I did meet him at Disney World. And I don't have a picture of that, but sometime I'll show it to you. And... Uh, He, Egypt and Israel had been at war for quite some time, and he orchestrated peace between Israel and Egypt. 
Uh, and he, what happened was is that Israel gave back this, this Sinai Peninsula. Now, I've been to the Sinai Peninsula. In fact, right here at the very bottom is a city called Elat. And I, I spent an evening there before going into Jordan and uh, spending a couple of days there. And uh, this Sinai Peninsula, this is the Red Sea, this whole area right here. And um, this whole area, the Sinai Peninsula, is all desert. I mean, there's, there's nothing. There's no natural resources. There's nothing. So for Israel to give it back didn't really cost them anything. And then it allowed Egypt to kind of save face that they got, uh, they got their, their, their land back. But now it created a precedent. And if you've watched the news or followed Middle Eastern um, tensions, it's what's called land for peace. Because Israel gave back land to Egypt, now that's the idea, is that you give us land and we will have peace. Um, with Jordan, they didn't get uh, their area of the West Bank back. Instead, what they got was, um, if you see that part of Jordan uh, just slightly connects to um, the Sea of Galilee, and what they got was an agreement that Israel would give them so many millions of gallons of water uh, every, every year. And, that's, and that happened about 1994. And so now for the last 15, 16 years, um, Israel and uh, Jordan have had peace. Syria, on the other hand, has said, we want the Golan Heights and we do not want anything else in return or nothing less. You took this land from us. It belongs to us and we want it back. Now, I've been on the Golan Heights. I actually have a picture uh, on the Golan Heights of a machine gun that you actually sit in that's actually pointed to the bottom uh, where school, uh, Israeli school children would walk to school. And uh, what the Syrians would do since uh, during uh, Israel's independence, they would stand, sit on the Golan Heights and just fire off on people that would be just citizens that were walking. And so when Israel took that land, they said, we cannot give up the high ground for the sake of the safety of our citizens. Now, here's the thing that's that's important. The things that Christians have been waiting for um, have happened. Israel being back in the land. Israel controlling Jerusalem, and then this other thing, which is Jews returning to Israel. Now, I want to read you a passage from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. It's in the notes that we gave you. I hope you keep these handy and the pen that we gave you, because you're probably going to write down a lot of notes. Um, But here's what the Bible says. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And as a shepherd looks after a scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a, in a, on a day of clouds and darkness. And I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from, from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and in the ravines and in the settlements of the land. That's God's promise to Israel after they had been taken to the country of Babylon. But once again, the idea is, is that now that Israel has been scattered throughout the entire earth, that there would be this understanding that Israel would, would return, that all of Israel from all four corners of the earth would begin to return and migrate back to the place of their fathers and forefathers. One of the most amazing things that you and I have been able to witness in our lifetime is uh, the return. And, what's called, uh, and there's actually a specific Hebrew word for that. The, the return of Jews from all over the earth to the place of their fathers and forefathers. And once again, this is something that only started happening over the last 75 or 80 years. In 1918, there were only 85,000 Jewish people living in all of of what we call Israel today. Today, there are 13 million Jews worldwide and 5.6 million are living in Israel, which is more than any other place. Uh, In fact, there there was a time when there were more Jews living in Brooklyn, New York than there were in all of Israel. And now there's more Jews living in Israel than any other place on earth. There's 5.6, Jews, 5.6 million Jews living in, in Israel. There's 5.2 million living in, uh, in the United States and uh, another couple of million living in Europe and, and the, in the rest of the world. But what's amazing that's, that's important for us to understand, and this is all setting up what we're going to talk about, is that no people group, has ever survived more than three generations without their own homeland. Israel in 132 A.D., after a rebellion, uh, what's called the Bar Kokhba Revolt, which I, unfortunately I do not have time to talk about because it, it uh, would allow me, I'd have to talk until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So uh, I'll tell you about it some other time. 
But after this revolt against Rome, um, Israel was kicked out of the land of Israel. The, na- the name of the, the country of Israel was changed. Uh, the Caesar at that time uh, made a decree that no two Jews were to be allowed speaking in Jerusalem at the same time. If they were, two Jews were caught speaking, they would be arrested and possibly even executed. And so Jews were scattered. They could not live in Israel anymore. He actually changed, the Caesar changed the name of the country from Israel to Palestine. The reason why he called it uh, Palestine was to simply spite the Jews because Palestine is a derivative of the word Philistine. And so he decided to name the country after the ancient enemies of Israel. And so the Jews were kicked out and they were scattered throughout all of the earth. And it was only now over the last you know, 75, 80 years that we've seen this migration of people come back. But the thing that's amazing is that, like I said, no people group has lasted more than three generations without a homeland and been able to maintain their national identity. I don't know, have you met any Assyrians lately? Right, probably not. Why? They lost their homeland. They got to, the Assyria was the, giant, the biggest empire on the earth at one time until they were conquered by the Babylonians. But my guess is you probably haven't met any Babylonians lately. Why? They, they lost their lands. You probably haven't met any Canaanites. You probably haven't met any Hittites. Maybe you've met a few Uptites, but they don't have a homeland. Um, but here's, here, here's, here's the thing. But how about this? You probably met an Egyptian who are just uh, who are a culture just as old as those others that I've mentioned. But because they've been able to maintain a homeland, they've been able to maintain their national identity. But you cannot maintain your national identity if you do not have a homeland. And yet that is something that the Jewish people were able to do for 1900 years without a homeland and still maintain their national identity. How? This is what the Jews say. They say the Jews have kept the Sabbath and the Sabbath has kept the Jews. Well, this is what the Bible says in Ezekiel 36. It says this, the son of man. When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their actions was like a a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. And so I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations... Uh, They profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. And yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. And I will, show my, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them, the Lord. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. That's the thing that you and I, you and I have witnessed that very thing happening over the last 50, 60, 70 years. There's another thing I want to tell you about, too, because Israel is coming back into the land. But the other thing that's important for us to note is that up until 100 years ago, or even maybe a little less, Hebrew was a completely dead language. Um, people spoke Hebrew, the rabbi spoke Hebrew, and uh, Jewish people knew some Hebrew because they would go uh, to synagogue and they would... Uh, do the feasts of Passover and, and that sort of thing. But no one was actually speaking Hebrew. It's like Latin. There's people that study Latin in college, um, but nobody, you know, goes out to actually speak Latin. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a dead language. Hebrew was a dead language. Um, that is until one man came along by the name of Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda uh, was born in Lithuania um, in the uh, 19th century, and um, he mo- around the year 1900 or so, uh, he moved his family to Israel, then just called this area of Palestine or British Mandate, whatever you want to call it. Um, he moves his family, him, his wife, and his 11 children uh, from Lithuania to, um, the, to Israel. 
And he turns to them and he says this. He says, these are the last words you will ever hear me say that are not in Hebrew. And for the rest of his life, until he died in 1922, all he did was speak Hebrew. He wrote his own dictionary uh, on the Hebrew language. And this man is single-handedly responsible for reviving the Jewish language. Once again, by the time Eliezer ben Yehuda died in 1922, every Jew in Israel was speaking Hebrew. And all over the world, the Jews were speaking Hebrew. In fact, historians, what they say about Eliezer ben Yehuda is that they say this, before ben Yehuda, Jews could speak Hebrew. After ben Yehuda, they did. In fact, if you go to Israel, and we're looking to plan a trip in 2012, uh, if the world doesn't come to an end, of course. Um, But uh, um, if you go to Israel with us um, in whatever, 18 months or so, um, and we get to Jerusalem, and you get to the main street, the main thoroughfare in in Jerusalem, uh, it's called Ben Yehuda Street, named after the man who revived their language. Um, and by the way, this is a fulfillment, once again, of another Bible prophecy. In the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, here's what it says it's in your notes. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. So what happens now? Israel is in the land. Jews are returning to Israel. Israel is flourishing and prospering in the land that was given to them by God. And it's that now, as we see Israel flourishing in the land. We'll talk about that in a bit. But it reminds me of something that Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. He said these words. He said, now learn the lesson of the fig tree. It says, when its branches bud and its leaves are beginning to sprout, you know that summer is near. When you see all of these things, you can know that his return is near right at the door. Throughout the Bible, the symbol for Israel is the fig tree. And what Jesus is saying is, is that when you see Israel in their land, bearing fruit, prospering and growing, here's the thing. It means that my return is at the door. So what does that mean? And the question that I get asked a lot is, Bob, Pastor, what's next? What's like the next issue of Bible prophecy that's going to be fulfilled? We've seen Israel in the land. We see them have Jerusalem. We see them prospering and all this. What's the next scene? What's the next event on God's prophetic calendar? Well, from studying the scriptures, not only I, but most theologians believe that the next scene in the prophetic drama of scripture is the rapture of the church. Where the Bible, the rapture of the church is the time when Jesus takes, returns for his church, takes them, removes them from the world, takes them to heaven so that he now can deal with Israel. And see, at that very moment when Israel, when the church is removed, it will set in motion a seven year period of time called the tribulation, which is spoken about in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Now, here's what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 30. It says, for these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and his all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it shall be a time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. The tribulation is a time where God is dealing primarily with Israel, not the church. That's why Jesus removes the church from the scene. And you say, well, how do you, one of the ways you can know that is, and if you were with us about two years ago and we spent six months studying the book of Revelation, we talked about this. In the first three chapters of Revelation, the word church is used 19 times. Once the tribulation starts in chapter 6, the word church is never used. It uses words like elect. It uses words like saints. But once again, those are generic terms that are used for God's people in general. And it's speaking of Israel. But let me ask you this. So God takes his people, rapture the church. Jesus comes in the clouds, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God's people get beamed up, you know, like Star Trek or something. We get, we get beamed out. And then God is now turning and dealing with Israel. Why is it a seven-year period? It's a seven-year period because of something that God said uh, in the book of Daniel. Now let me read it to you in, the book of, in Daniel 9, 24. It's in your notes. 
It says 77s are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy one or the most holy place. Seventy-sevens. The Hebrew word there for sevens, you may want to circle it and write next to it, write the Hebrew word Shabuah, S-H-A-B-U-A. Now, the term Shabuah in Hebrew means a week of years. Just like we would write a dozen and we all recognize that it means 12. Well, a Shabuah means, uh, like, or we would say a decade. We would know that that means 10 years. Well, a Shabuah in Hebrew means a week of years or seven years. And so what he's saying is, is that 77-year periods are determined for your people, who were Daniel's people, the Jews, for your holy city. What is your holy city? Jerusalem. That is 490 years if we're going to do the math. But then he says this, and this is what I want you to understand, is that the first 69 of those 70-year periods have already been fulfilled. Now, here's what the Bible says. It says, Know this and understand that from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in a time of trouble, And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Now, I want to share something with you that to me, when we talk about Bible prophecy and talk about the second coming of Jesus and how precise it is, it's important for us to realize how precise the first coming of Jesus was. Um, He says 62 sevens and seven sevens, which is, you know, kind of like saying four score and seven years ago. What does that mean? Um, it, what it really means is uh, 62 sevens and seven sevens is 69, right? Which is 483 years. Remember, Jews uh, operate on a lunar calendar, which is a 360-day calendar. Um, so if you're going to do the math, uh, which I will do the math for you, unless some of you brought a calculator, uh, but that's 173,880 days. So, but it, here's the thing. He says that the, the clock starts like a stopwatch. He says that... On, from the, the goings forth, when the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the, sign, until the, the, the coming of Messiah is 62 sevens and seven sevens. So the 483 years or 173,880 days. But see, we know when the command was given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem because we have the book of Nehemiah. And the, the, the command was given... King Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem on March 14th, 445 B.C. So all we have to do is just do the math, break out a really long calendar, and go from 445 March 14th, 445 B.C. and count 173,880 days. Now the question becomes, what does that bring us to? What it brings us to is April 6th. 32 AD. What happened April 6, 32 AD? Well, let me let me say something before I tell you this. You ever notice if you've read the Gospels that Jesus would heal people and he would say, by the way, don't tell anybody. Or people would say, um, you're the Messiah. And he'd say, yes, I am. Don't say anything. Hey, we're going to make you king at one point, And Jesus kind of slips out. Or someone Jesus is at a feast at Cana in Galilee, and his mother says to him, they ran out of wine, you need to do something. And he says, my time is not yet. In the Gospel of John, you find this over and over. He says, my time is not yet, my time is not yet, my time is not yet. Except at the Passover, before his death, when he says this, he tells his disciples to go get a colt, a donkey. And he says, "I, I want you to go get this donkey. If they give you a problem, tell them that the Lord needs it. And then Jesus, very uncharacteristically, who's always telling people not to say anything, rides into Jerusalem on April 6, 32 A.D., on a white donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus rode in on Jerusalem on that day, on a day we call Palm Sunday, to proclaim that he was the Messiah. The Bible says in the Psalm 118, verse 24, it says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, let me just tell you, I know some of you bought new calendars and it says that. And it's like, and, or we have it like, hey, every day is a, 
is a blessed day or whatever. That's not, the, that's not really what the passage means. This passage is messianic in nature. When it says this is the day the Lord has made, the day is speaking of the day that the Messiah comes. And that's why on, 30, on April 6, 32 A.D., people laid their palm branches down. I don't know about you, but do you just walk around with palms? No, you, they had palms. They were ex, there was an expectation that the Messiah was coming. And guess what? Jesus is the only one who showed up on that day. On the day that the Bible says the Messiah was supposed to show up. And that's why they would say, and this is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, they would say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means this. It means save us now. And see, the 483 years are done, but one seven-year period remains because it's 490 years. And at the time Jesus came and the Messiah was cut off, he was killed, the stopwatch stopped. And one seven-year period remains. And once the church is taken out at the rapture of the church, that stopwatch will begin again. But right after the rapture of the church, the Bible teaches something. It teaches us that there's going to be an invasion of Israel. And that, God, that Israel will find themselves completely and utterly alone. And that God himself will save, will intervene and defeat all of Israel's enemies. And listen, what I'm about to share with you now, and if you would, open your Bibles with me to the, to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38. What I'm going to share with you is absolutely mind-blowing, and I'm going to tell you why. Is because what we're reading was written 2,600 years ago, and it could have very well been written today in every major newspaper or any major newspaper in America or around the world. Let's look at Ezekiel, chapter 38, in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them, and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. For I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all of your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed. A great army with bucklers and shields and all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia and Libya, Libya are with them and all of them with a shield and helmet. Gomer with all its troops. The house of Togarma from the far north with all of its troops. Many people are with you. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing I want to tell you in your notes. And if, you, if you're taking notes, this is what I want you to write down, and that is this, is that Russia and several nations will attack Israel. Now, the challenge that we have is to, is to identify the players. Because I don't know about you, but, you know, Gog and Magog, you haven't probably heard about them very much, or at least you don't think you've heard about them very much in the news, although you have. And you say, you know, Meshach and Tubal, I'm not sure I know about them, or Rosh. Uh, but here's the thing, you, you have heard about them. Because here's the thing, is that while the names change, the, the area stays the same. So, um, you know, in, in Miami, you might not realize this, but Miami used to not be called Miami. Uh, Miami only became Miami in 1898. It used to be called Fort Dallas until... Uh, until almost, you know, 1900. And so if someone were to say, you know, I prophesy to you, O Fort Dallas, we would know, don't have to say Miami to know that we're talking about the same region. And so let's identify the players. And so you have Gog and Magog. Let me show you this map. You have, you have, Gog, uh, you have Magog, which is this area right here around uh, the Black Sea. And now that is, um, once again, forms much of the former Soviet Union, but today would be Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and also parts of Afghanistan. Um, by the way, if you ever go to China and visit the Great Wall, by the way, the Great Wall of China, the Chinese don't call it the Great Wall of China. You know what the Chinese call it? They call it the Wall of Magog. Because China sees the Great Wall as when they built it, it was separating Magog from China. Now, uh, Rosh, once again, this area was this whole area, which is a reference to Russia or the former Soviet Union. Meshek and Tubal, this whole area is what's, what would later be called Asia Minor and what's now uh, the modern uh, country of Turkey. 
Um, in the New King James, it says um, Libya and Ethiopia. In the King James, and it gives you the original names, which are Cush and Put, you know, C-U-S-H and P-U-T, Cush and Put. Um, Libya would also um, include, uh, Put would also include uh, Libya and Algeria. Cush would include not only Ethiopia, but also the country of Sudan. Sudan and Iran have a, a very common uh, enemy in Israel, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And as well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, now you have uh, Gomer and Togarma. Once again, this is now you have this is Turkey, but now kind of creates a little bit of a larger area, um, just even beyond what is today uh, modern day Turkey. So you have all of these countries together. Now there's there's a there's one thing that unites all of these people, um, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. And let's talk about why they're going to invade. And that's what God says next in verse seven. Here's what we read. It says, prepare yourself and be ready. You and all your companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. For after many days, you will be visited in the latter days. You will come into the land and those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate, that they were brought out of the nations. And now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend coming like a storm covering the land like a cloud. You and all your troops and many peoples with you. And thus says the Lord on that day, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful place to dwell, who dwell safely. In all, all of them dwelling without walls and have neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty uh, and to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from nations who have acquired livestock and goods and who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take, to take away livestock and goods, and to take a great plunder? Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing I want you to note. And that is that they attack for religious and economic reasons. For religious and economic reasons. Let's talk about the economic reasons first. Um, Israel, if you're not aware, is a very wealthy country. Um, they have water by the way, which most of the Middle East does not have. And when you live in the desert, water is life. And uh, they've also discovered recently that they have oil reserves. In fact, just this week, I mean, December 30th, like three days ago, uh, in the major Israeli newspaper, in their version of the New York Times front page, they noted that Israel has just found 16 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, which is enough gas for them to become an exporter in, uh, in, in, in gas. That's to say nothing. By the way, this is uh, valued at over $100 billion. And what they've just found, not including what they already have. Um, that doesn't also include the technology, because they are the Silicon Valley of uh, the Middle East and Europe. Also, this doesn't mention the minerals that are in the Dead Sea. Um, if you ever go to Israel with us, when I was there, one of the things that we did was you, you go into the Dead Sea. You can't actually swim in the Dead Sea. You can only float in the Dead Sea because it, there's such a heavy concentrate of minerals. Um, if you go into the Dead Sea, it will just push you back up. And so you just kind of float there for a while and then you get out feeling completely disgusting because you have all this minerals and whatever on you. Um, but if you would take some of the minerals out of the Dead Sea, uh, these minerals that could be sold, um, are valued at trillions of dollars. So a person who could control Israel um, would prosper economically, but that's not the primary reason, although God says that that is a reason. But the, one, the primary reason is religious in nature. All of the countries that I mentioned to you, Turkey, uh, Iran, which is Persia uh, at, at that time, um, you know, uh, Sudan, Libya, um, all of these countries, Ethiopia, these are all countries that are primarily Muslim. 
And the Islamic world is bent on destroying Israel. Why? Because of jihad. Now, jihad, most of you know, means holy war. But the thing that you have to understand, too, is that jihad um, is also a philosophy. It's a philosophy of how Islam progresses. The goal of jihad is to establish Islamic authority uh, over the entire world. Islam teaches that Allah is the only authority and that all political systems need to be based on Allah's teaching. And so Muslims also believe that once a land has been uh, conquered by Islam, it is to remain Islamic for all time. And if for some reason it is lost, it must be reconquered at all cost. So when Muslims took control of Israel during, uh, during the Crusades, um, and by the way, ah, I can't run out of time. All right, I'll keep going. I'll talk about this some other time. When, when, when um, see how frustrating 40 minutes can be. Uh, um, when Muslims con- took control of, is- of Israel during the Crusades, the Holy Land during the Crusades, um, later they lost it. And now there's the establishment of, an, of a, 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 the state of Israel, which is a total affront to them. Um, they firmly believe that they must reconquer this land. This is fundamental because they had it, they lost it, and now they must reconquer it. And so the hatred for Israel is religious in nature. And you cannot understand the motivation of Ezekiel 38 without understanding their Islamic influence. Now, I want to talk about one Islamic teaching in particular that's really important for us to note. And what's, uh, there's an Islamic uh, teaching that's called uh, the appearing or the, the emerging of the 12th imam. Um, there are, uh, Islam teaches us that there are 12 imams or 12 successors to Muhammad. And... Um, Eleven of them throughout history have been revealed. And you can go on Wikipedia. They'll tell you the names of the eleven imams, where they lived, and their, whatever. You can learn all about that. Um, but the twelfth imam was born in 869 A.D. And according to Muslims, he was, um, he was taken. You know, he, he has disappeared. He's vanished. And the, the teaching is, is that he, one day he will reappear to bring justice and peace by establishing Islam throughout the entire world. Now... Uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is the president, uh, the current president of Iran. This is what he has said. This is a quote of his uh, from about a year ago. Our revolution's main mission is to pave the way for the reappearance of the 12th Imam. Ahmadinejad believes that the destruction of Israel is one of the key global developments that will trigger the appearance of the 12th Imam. He also believes the destruction of the United States is what will trigger the appearance of the 12th Imam. And he has said this, this is over the last year, that a world without Israel and America is attainable. And once attained, the 12th Imam will appear. This is a man that believes that the apocalypse will, will occur in his lifetime. And that Allah has chosen him to play a huge role in ushering in the end of days. Iran right now, ancient Persia, um, has long-range missiles that can travel 1,200 miles. Why 1,200? Because that's the the distance between uh, Iran and Israel. He believes that war with Israel is not possible. It is inevitable. In 2006, after his election as president of Iran, uh, Ahmadinejad sent the U.S. a five-page letter urging all of us to uh, urging all of us from our president all the way down to us um, to convert to Islam. And most people just kind of blew it off and said, well, this is just some crazy guy, you know, trying to mock us or whatever. And they didn't understand why he did that. The reason that he did that is because it is Islamic tradition to offer conversion to Islam to an enemy just prior to war. And if they refuse, then Muslims are justified in destroying the infidels. Now, here's the thing that's important for us to know. And this is what's going to bring us a little closer to home. It said in, the, in the verses that we read in verse 13, it, it mentions three groups of people. Sheba and Dedan, Tarshish, and the young lions. Now, uh, and that's not rookies that are playing football in Detroit. Um, now, Sheba and Dedan uh, refers to Saudi Arabia. That's ancient Saudi Arabia. Tarshish 
which you read, if you read the book of Jonah, you know Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and he was headed to Tarshish, which is all the way on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, which to them was like as far as you could go um, in the other direction. Uh, Tarshish is uh, ancient England. And then the young lions, the offspring of England, which I believe is a reference to the United States. Now, here's what the Bible says. It says that Sheba, D. Dan, that, that Saudi Arabia, England, and countries like the United States will huff and puff that Russia and these other nations are going to invade Israel, but we won't do anything. We have been, over the last 60 years, Israel, our country has been Israel's strongest supporter. And yet... Um, the world sees our weakness. This country is $15 trillion in debt. And the American people are tired of war. By the way, what I've just told you is not what I have come up with. It's what Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has come up with. And this is what he said. He says, America is in debt and the American people are tired of war and the American military is stretched too thin. And, and his, his um, philosophy is, is that America will never do, take any kind of hostile action against Iran for those reasons, because we're already stretched too thin uh, militarily. Now, I'm not making uh, you know that I never use this pulpit. Um, I, I use this pulpit to teach the Bible, not to make political commentary. I t this is the extent of my political commentary. You should vote. You should search the scriptures and find out who holds the, the something the, the values that that most uh, mirror your values. And that's who you should vote for. So I'm not going to tell you either way who to vote for, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about the current administration. The current administration's position that says they support Israel has done nothing but throw Israel under the bus. Um, President Obama, speaking to Muslim leaders last month, criticized Israel for building 250,000 homes in the areas surrounding uh, Jerusalem. Um, because there's 800,000 people that want to buy homes in Israel. And these contractors have been waiting for the government to give them the okay to begin to build on this land. And um, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave the okay. And so speaking to a group of Muslim leaders, um, President Obama now criticized Israel because it hurt the peace process. Now, at the same time, this current administration has decided to give the, the Palestinian Authority, which I don't know what they have any authority of, but they're called the Palestinian Authority, we decided to give $150 million of, you, of your tax dollars to the Palestinians because they were tight on cash. By the way, um, over the last couple of weeks, is, uh, the Palestinians announced that they are unilaterally declaring a Palestinian state this summer. There's no U.N. resolution. There's no the global community has not come together. They have not talked this out. They are just deciding that right in the middle of Israel that they are going to declare their own Palestinian, their own Palestinian state. Now, see, I'm guessing that that's probably a little bit worse than like building a few townhomes. Right. I'm, I'm kind of guessing that. But what has our administration said about that? Absolutely nothing. All we've done is fund them. And we've given them, by the way. You know who the, the, the greatest monetary supporter of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation uh, Organization, the Palestinian Authority is? Iran. And we just gave them $150 million because they were a little strapped. Um, listen, the bottom line is this. The Palestinian leaders do not want peace. They want war. Former founder and former PLO um, leader Yasser Arafat, when he was still alive, this is just a few years ago, he said this, quote, um, he said, we do not want a Palestinian state next to Israel. We want a Palestinian state instead of Israel. And that's why Iran gives the PLO millions upon millions of dollars is because it funds terrorism in Israel and around the world. So let's talk about the connection between Israel uh, or pardon me, between Iran and Russia in this invasion. A couple of things. Um, Iran is thinking about joining a coalition um, that's called the, the CTSO, or the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Uh, now, this is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, every country that I mentioned in Ezekiel 38, every country that I mentioned, they're all part of this group. They're all part of this group. The second thing is, is that every single one of these groups, except for Russia, is, is Islamic. 
And number three, if I ran joins, they're right now observing, deciding if they want to join. If they do join and want to attack Israel, they will all join in and usher in this, this whole scene of Ezekiel 38. And once again, you don't have to take my word for it. Go online. You can look up this, uh, this collective. You know, it, it's the Collective Security Treaty Organization. You can read all about it. And, um, but another reason that Russia has been working so closely with Iran is because Russia needs money. And Iran is more than happy uh, because they supply oil to most of Europe um, and to, to, the, to, to the EU, uh, the European Union. Uh, they've got more than enough money to spend. And, the, and Russia has all of these ex-KGB uh, operatives that are now running that government. And uh, so now Iran is supporting um, Russia. And they're, they're, Russia is selling arms to Iran to the tune of $500 million dollars a year. But prob- and that's not even the most alarming thing. The most alarming thing is that Russia has been assisting Iran in its nuclear ambitions. And they're building nuclear reactors in Iran and are currently training 1,000 Iranian scientists and technicians in complex nuclear processes. Senator John McCain recently, over the last few months, said this. He said, there is only one scenario worse than military action in Iran, and that is a nuclear-armed Iran. Adolf Hitler wiped out half of the Jewish people, and all he had were conventional weapons and the media. That's it. Imagine what Iran will attempt if their nuclear ambitions are realized. They will seek to attack, they will seek to attack Israel and usher in what God said was going to happen. And by the way, Iran said that they would be nuclear um, in two years. And they said that about two years ago. All right, let me give you the last part. Look at verse 14. This is where we're going to bring it to a close. It says, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, on the day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? And you will come from your place out of the far north, uh, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses in great company and a great army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover it. And it will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. And I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in in those days that I would bring you against them? Verse 18, it says, and it will come to pass at that time when God comes against the land of Israel, uh, says, says the Lord, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in my in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the ground and all men who are on all the face of the earth shall wait, shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call uh, for a sword against Gog throughout all the mountains throughout all my mountains and the Lord uh, and every man's sword will be against his brother and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed I'll rain down on him and his troops and on the many peoples who are with him flooding rain great hailstones fire and brimstone thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and then they will know that I am the Lord. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing I want to tell you. And that is that God will intervene and save Israel. God will intervene and save Israel. From these verses, how is God going to do it? He's going to use infighting among the troops. That it says that uh, one man will, will turn on another. He's going to use natural disaster and he's going to use disease. Why? So that Israel turns back to God. That even though Israel is back in their land, they are largely a secular society. And this event is one of the things that God will use to turn them back to Israel. And here's the point of all that I'm, that I'm saying and all that I've said today. Is that this could happen today. There is nothing stopping this from taking place. The motivation is there. The weaponry is there. All the players are there. 
And now the question is, when? You see, all of these countries are aligned together. They're motivated. And the United States, who has been Israel's strongest supporter and would have held people off from attacking Israel, is knowing that there would be a response from the United States. But once again, this current administration is not going to... to if, they're already, if they're criticizing Israel for building homes, they're, they're not going to back Israel as we have in years past. President Reagan... Um, was a believer, a follower of Jesus, but he was also a student of Bible prophecy. Uh, in fact, uh, those that knew him, if you read one of his biographies, they'll say that Ezekiel 38 and 39 to him were the most fascinating passages of Bible prophecy. He believed that Jesus, that Jesus' return was imminent and that he might even live to see it. Now, of course, we know that he did not live to see it, but he believed that he was living in history's last days. That's why in 1983, he declared 1983 the year of the Bible. Could you imagine a president uh, declaring a year the year of the Bible, encouraging Americans to read the scriptures? He saw the state of the world and believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. And that was 30 years ago. How much truer is that today? See, the Bible says this. It says in your notes, it says, and do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Um, I'm going to guess that most of you have been to Disney World at some point, if you, you know, in your, in your life, if you live in South Florida. Um, and you know what's interesting about the drive from Miami to, uh, to Disney is that there aren't that many signs for Disney and Broward. There aren't even that many signs for Disney and Palm Beach. There's a couple. But then you get like the Port St. Lucie and you start seeing one or two. And then you pass something called Yeehaw Junction. I have no idea what that is, but I see tons of signs for it. And then you keep going. But the, you know what's interesting? The closer that you get to Orlando, the number of the signs increase, the size of the signs increase, and the, the stronger the frequency and the intensity of the signs become. And the same thing is true with the return of Jesus. The closer that we get, the more the signs of his coming increase in frequency and intensity. Now, the question is this. I've given you a lot of data. And I say, man, it's like, been at the, it's like the history channel. Now, here's the thing. Now, the question is, what are you going to do with it? Let me read you a passage that Jesus said out of the Gospel of Matthew. After he spoke about his return, this is what he said. Who then is a, the watchful and faithful servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants uh, in his household to give them food at their proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds, finds him doing when he returns. I tell you the truth. I will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and begins to say to himself, my master is staying away for a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he's not aware of and he will cut him to pieces and assign a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the return of Jesus, the idea that Jesus could come back any moment, it should prompt us to live a godly life. But see, when we start believing that the master is delaying in his coming, that's when we start living ungodly. That's why the best thing you, you can do is to live with the expectation that Jesus could come back today. You know why? Because it puts our lives into perspective. It puts the trivial things that we obsess about, it puts them into perspective. The reality of Jesus' return gets my priorities in the right order. In 1 John chapter 3, this is what the Apostle John writes, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been... Uh, and what we will be has not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we, know, we will know him as he is. And all who have this hope in him, in them, purify themselves just as he is pure. If you have the hope that Jesus is coming back, you know what's going to happen? It's just this. You're going to live a pure and holy life. But the question that we have to answer for ourselves is, are we really doing that? Are we really living a pure life? Are we really living a holy life? Are we really walking with God? I'm not talking about giving God lip service. 
I'm not talking about living however you want and then saying, yeah, but you know, I still pray. I'm talking about really living for him. I have my assistant uh, pull a report for me um, based on uh, the connection cards that all of us fill out. And this is what this is what the, the, the report said, is that um, here at Calvary, 50 percent of us attending once a month. Twenty five attending every other 25 percent attending every other week, 25 percent attending three or four times a month, something that looks like regular attendance. Can I just as your pastor be bold with you for a moment and just tell you, listen, once a month just isn't going to cut it. Not if you really want to grow. Not if you want to be strong in the Lord, not not if you really want to see God transform your life, because here's what I know is that if you're showing up once a month, you're probably not reading the Bible every day. If you're you're only showing up once a month, you're probably really slacking on most uh, of the disciplines that cause us to grow. And listen, I share with I share it with this with you for no other reason than to challenge you that it's a brand new year. And I commend you for being here and I commend you for putting up with me as long as you have, as long as I've taught today. Um, But listen, now is the time to get serious with God that you can make a decision. Listen, I, I put this in the back of your connection card. That you, one of your next steps is to attend faithfully so that you can grow. That you, that you get really serious. That yes, I'm going to do it. That a football game is not going to get is not going inter, to interfere with this. Somebody's birthday party, quinceanera, bar mitzvah, whatever. None of that's going to get in the way of me growing in my faith. None of it is. You know what you can do too? It's the second of the year. If you make a decision to say, you know what, I'm not only going to be here and grow. I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I'm going to pick a a Bible reading plan that takes me through the scriptures. What would happen in your life if you read through the entire Bible? Where would you be one year from today? You'd be light years from where you are. Leaps and bounds. Stronger in your faith. Knowing God better. Trusting Him more. You check that box off, we'll send you a reading plan where you can read through the Bible in the next 365 days. What's my point? We need to start living in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon. Because, my friends, we aren't just living in the last days. We're living in the last of the last days. And listen, if you're here and, and, and you say, man, this is really fascinating, but I'm not a Christian. Or uh, I've got, I went to church as a kid and I never really bothered, um, you know, once I became an adult. Or maybe you're here and you're just kind of wondering and asking questions and this kind of stuff fascinates you or whatever. Listen, um, that rapture thing that happens, um, that's for Christians. Uh, not, not for people who, who kind of give God lip service. Not for people who, um, you know, oh, well, you know, my grandma brought me to church. You know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He just has children. And you've got to decide, have you made God your father? Have you invited Jesus to come into your life to forgive you? Because if not, these things that I'm talking about, I can't can't give you the promises of the Bible to them because these promises are for believers. And if that's the case, listen, then the time is now. The time is now to say that you're going to invite Jesus to come into your life. To make the choice and to turn to God. Because listen, God has already taken the step. And now he's asking you and I to say, will we receive the gift that he's given to us, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness of all of our sins? Why hasn't he come back yet? Listen to what the Bible says. This is the last verse in your outline. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. You want to know why Jesus hasn't come back yet? It's because he's been waiting for you. He's been waiting for you. And maybe today is the day that you make a decision to follow him. And we become one step closer to that glorious day. So as we close, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you. If you want to make that decision to invite Jesus into your life, to ask him to forgive forgive you of your sins, to walk with him. If that's that's you and you say, "I, I want that in my life. If that's the case. I'm going to pray and I'm going to lead you in a prayer. This prayer is not a magic formula, but maybe it might express with words what your heart is feeling even at this moment. So let's pray together. And God, we want to thank you 
to the fact that you love us. Your word says, Lord, what is man that you're mindful of him? And so, God, we just pray. I pray for every person here that we would live with the reality of your return. And God, for some of us that have never made that decision to follow you, I pray that today would be the day that we make the decision to receive the forgiveness and love that you have for us because of what Jesus did on that cross, because he rose again from the dead. God, as those who are making that decision pray, I pray that you would hear and I pray that you would act on their behalf and that they would never be the same as they experience your love in their life. Listen, those of you that want to make that decision, I'm going to ask that not only that you say this, but that you say it out loud. That with every head bowed, every eye closed. If you want to make that decision, just say, Dear God, I open my heart and I invite you in. I ask that you forgive me of all I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to walk with you starting right now forever. In Jesus' name, amen.